And Lordy knows those people on the Zoom might not be listening. <clears throat> Sorry, just kidding. Charlton, you, Charlton, you can always mute them. It'll be okay. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Hello, everyone. I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we attempt to make today make sense, and especially after an election day. Lord <laughs> knows we need it. Yeah, right? <laughs> no joke. I'm Kyle Rosdahl. This is What Do You Want to Know Wednesday. We answer the questions that you, our loyal listeners, have sent in. If you've got a questions about the economy or business or tech, you can send us to it. You can send it to us at makemesmartatmarketplace.org, or you can leave us a voicemail, 508-UB-SMART is how you do that. We are not actually going to do a bunch of election questions today because y'all haven't sent them in yet, so please do. But in the meantime, we are going to start with an email from Becca. She's been doing a lot of her new and used shopping on eBay lately, and she writes, Does my eBay habit still contribute negatively to inflation because I am still buying things and giving other Americans money that they can use to buy things? Or does it help counter it, inflation, since I'm not exacerbating the supply chain issues in quite the same way that demand for new goods does? Or is it kind of inflation neutral? Who's doing this one? You or me? You are, because that's a tough one. Okay. <laughs> Therefore, it's right. your fault. So there you go. So let's remember. <laughs> sorry, I got to let the dog in. Got to let the dog in. Willie, come here. Come on. Come on. Uh, sorry. Um, so let's see. So let's remember what inflation is, right? It's too much money chasing too few goods, but it's the goods in this case that are the question. We reached out to Dr. Yeva Nersisian. She's a researcher at the Levy Economics Institute uh, in New York, helped us answer the question. She says, here's the deal. People doing their shopping on eBay don't really have a noticeable uh, impact on inflation because the stuff that people generally buy on eBay, which are mostly, although not exclusively, used goods, don't mm -hmm. really factor into uh, the CPI calculation. The other thing is this. Um, eBay is consumer to consumer, right? It's not business to consumer. It's not direct to consumer. It is consumer to consumer. So that really makes us not as vulnerable to big supply chain things. But here's the deal. There are, as on Amazon, right? eBay has its own um, corporate storefront section, right? Adidas, Bose uh, have their own storefronts there. Mm -hmm. They sell, you know, sometimes a uh, new product, depending on how the brand is going. So it's not neutral in that way, but it's mostly really low impact, I guess is what I'd say. That's the name of the game. Yes. When was the last time you there bought you something on eBay? Oh, my God. It's been 20 years. I, I did eBay, like, in the beginning. Sorry, now I'm yeah, closing because it's really freaking cold in L.A. and Willow wanted to go outside. Um, yeah, no, it's been like forever. It used to be like this. Ride, Ooh, sure. yeah, here's a thing. And I bought like a I bought a uh, a watch, I think, on eBay. But this it was like 20 years ago. And, you know, and you watch the auction and this and that. And mm -hmm. then I, I just yeah, I just kind of lost interest. Honestly, I think I bought uh, a vase from my uncle on eBay a couple of months ago because he wanted one to match this other kind of weird, quirky vase that he has. And I found it on eBay. But before that, yeah, I think it must have been 10 years before I bought anything on eBay. But, yeah. 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 Anyway, okay. uh, so here we go. This one, oh my goodness, here's a question about verification <laughs> on Twitter, which if you've been following the news, you know is a very hot topic right now. Here you go. Hello, this is Friar Paul, recently returned to San Antonio, Texas. My question is about this verification process on Twitter. What does it actually involve? What would the $8 be paying for? I mean, before, did they call you up and get your ID and make sure this is you? Because um, there seems to be a lot of the concerns are that somebody could just 
pay the $8 before you and steal your name. I'd please make me smart. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Oh, if only stealing your name was the worst that could happen. Uh, mm. the, one of the bigger concerns with having a pay-to-play Twitter verification uh, option is that people are very concerned that it will allow bad actors on the platform to you know, basically get verification and use that as a greater as greater leverage to be able to spread mis and disinformation or, or really toxic uh, content on the platform. But to get back to the original premise of your question, before Elon Musk took over, if you wanted to get verified on Twitter, you had to basically upload documents to Twitter that proved that your account account was authentic, that it was really you. Usually that was like a driver's license or something. Mm -hmm. And that it was notable. So sometimes that meant you had to have a certain threshold of followers for wherever you were, or you had to be a public figure, like a you know politician or a journalist or an actor or something like that. And the rules have kind of been fuzzy over the years about exactly what it took. And they went through phases of not verifying anybody. And it was really weird. So the whole point of the blue check, though, was to make sure that users knew which accounts were really those people so that, you know, Elon Musk was really actually Elon Mm -hmm. Musk and not somebody who had just, you know, sat on the username first or something like that. Now, with Twitter rolling out this new version of Twitter Blue, which is their paid subscription model, That means that anybody can pay $8 a month to get that blue check mark, and it does not require that ID verification, which, again, raised a lot of concern about the spread of mis- and disinformation to the point that Twitter delayed the launch until after the election. Supposedly, it it was supposed to start today. Yesterday, a Twitter executive said that they were going to also launch an official badge that Twitter would give out to select accounts for government officials, public figures, etc., And this morning, there were some accounts that were already labeled as official. But Musk then quickly tweeted, I just killed it. And now those official labels are gone. So now, I know this is so complicated. Now, if you tap on an account's blue check, a pop-up message will tell you if the account is verified because it's notable or because they are subscribed to Twitter Blue. And who knows if that will change again tomorrow. What's your verification status now? Did you get an official label? I'm clicking. I'm literally clicking right now. Hang on a minute. (laughs) My account information. This account is verified because it's notable in government, news, entertainment, or another designated category, which, you know, fine, whatever. Here's the really funny part. About, God, 10 years ago, maybe? So a couple years after I got onto Twitter, I noticed that Guy Raz, late of NPR and and now of Mm -hmm. all those podcasts that he does, he he's was not verified, dead, and I was like, way. "What he's the?" He's saying heck? late, as in formerly of, not late. Oh late, yeah, no, dead. he's not dead. He's not dead. Yeah, no, sorry. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so I saw that he was verified, and I was like, "What the hell? How are you verified?" So I DM'd him or whatever I did. Actually, this is what I did. So I DM'd him and I said, "How are you verified?" And he said, "Well, here's what happened." Blah blah blah. And I said, "Hey, can we do this on air?" So I did a segment with him on Twitter verification. And it turns out that he knew a guy who was at UTA, the talent agency. He was the digital talent agent at UTA, and he gave me his name, and I got a hold of him. His name is Eric Kuhn. He's now out of the business, and he's doing something else. And I said, hey, Eric, can you get me verified? And he said, sure. And like three days later, the blue check showed up, and I didn't do a freaking thing. 
I remember one time I was doing some reporting on Twitter and I had reason to be talking to the Twitter PR person. And at the end of the story, he was like, OK, thank you very much for working with us. And by the way, if you if you need verification or, you know, you or any of your colleagues need to get verified, just let me know. I can make that happen. And to me, that felt very journalistically unethical. <laughs> so I didn't yeah. ask for it. And then um, – then I actually tried like a couple of years later to like actually go through the process to get verified and was rejected over and over again. So, Oh, no way. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh I've been every time and rejected. Anywho. Yeah. All right. It's, All right. It's let's go. Serious. Sorry. Okay. Yes. Um, next up, a listener called in to ask about the future of sports broadcasting. Hey, Kai and Kimberly. This is Mark from Mountain View. Andy Euler had a story about how FIFA has rejected bids from European broadcasters for the Women's World Cup next year. In doing so, FIFA was clearly communicating how undervalued the, this women's sporting event is to these businesses. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if Andy has any insight on participation of streaming services like Apple TV and Amazon in the next round of bidding. Thanks for keeping us smart. So, we actually got a hold of Euler, who, by the way, is going to be on the pod tomorrow because I am traveling. Hello, Boston. Anyway, here's what Euler said. So, in the United States, yeah, it's one of those, you know, coast-to-coast things in 24 hours. Fox signed a deal with FIFA, the governing body, that gave them all the World Cup rights, broadcast streaming for both the women and men's tournaments through 2026. But streamers are really interested, especially uh, because it's growth areas like women's soccer and MLS uh, that are going to make it for him. Reuters, uh, this is according to you, Reuters said women's regular season matches on ABC and ESPN had an average audience of 343,000 viewers this season, which is not football uh, uh, audiences, but nothing to sneeze at, quoting Euler. Uh, MLS and <laughs> Apple TV have a $2.5 billion deal for 10 years um, for streaming for MLS games, uh, and that's according to the Financial Times, so that's a big deal. Look, here, here's the thing. Streamers, also traditional broadcasters, have to be paying more. They are going to be paying more for live sports because that's what people want. And honestly, those that have been on the margins, up to and including basically all women's sports, including women's basketball and women's soccer and all those things, um, are going to be able to charge a higher price, which is good. That's positive. That's a net positive for the sport. It's a net positive for viewers and most importantly for the women um, who are on the you know labor end of that equation. That's what I got. I am so fascinated to see how FIFA is going to adjust to like the the rise of women's sports globally, Mm -hmm. you know, because Mm -hmm. like here in the United States, now that the U S women's team has to be paid Mm -hmm. equally after all those Mm -hmm. lawsuits. And I have to imagine that, you know, especially in like European countries and things like that, these teams are really demanding the respect that their skills deserve. And it's going to be harder and harder, especially for these streaming platforms uh, with these streaming platforms, for them to validate publicly not being willing to pay. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Equally, because then you just look like a jerk, you know, and... Um, <laughs> Right. I, I, right. Of course, <laughs> let, let's let's be clear that male managers in media companies have never been afraid to look like jerks or worse. That, this so, is true. You know. ah, yeah. Fair, 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 fair. All right. All right. Uh, Rosa from the Bay Area has this one. 
Please settle an argument between my husband and me. And when I say Bay Area, by the way, I mean San Francisco Bay Area. That was a very California-centric thing to say. So here's it's what we're going to say. Please settle an question. Well, you know, I'm just saying. Please settle an argument between my husband and me. Do petroleum companies make more profit from California than other states? Are they punishing California for our more stringent regulations? Over to you. So our buddy Samantha Fields actually recently did a story about a little while back about why California gases are so high. And some of it is just because oil is imported, a lot of it in California, something like 70%. And yes, the state does have really high excise taxes on gas and that raises prices. Mm -hmm. But also California uses uh, this more environmentally friendly blend that is also more expensive to produce. Now, oil companies say these are the reasons behind the high gas prices. However, and oil and gas companies have also had some record profits recently, which we've talked about on the show. And so there's no evidence right now of them specifically gouging California. Uh, but many economists will say that the high prices aren't always like exactly tied to the market. I mean, you only have to listen to the Biden administration and, and right. Democrats to say that they're not just gouging California. The argument is they're gouging everyone. But the there are economists that say that, yes, the high prices are due to the unique market of California. But Governor Gavin Newsom in California and a nonprofit group called Consumer Watchdog are calling for a windfall profits, profit on yeah. a windfall profits tax on oil companies and more transparency about what oil refiners' profit margins are. And I'm sure that the Biden administration would love that, too. But that's supposed to come up for the California state legislature in December. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes. I mean, you know, Newsom is newly empowered, just won an election. Uh, all right, we're going to do this last one, or we're going to save it for Tuesday? What are we going to do? Uh, let's go ahead and do it. We can do it quick. Uh, so, right, Kai, you tweeted out your new Mastodon info, and listener Tweet O'Kyle uh, replied asking, what made you pick Mastodon? I, I don't know. I don't know. So here's the deal. Mastodon is a social network. It's been around for a number of years, but hasn't gotten a lot of traction until like the last 12 days when Elon Musk decided to burn Twitter to the ground. No, I kid. He hasn't decided that, but it's close. And one of the <laughs> things people are looking at is an alternative social network is this thing called Mastodon. I joined it because it's there. I literally don't know how it works. I could not tell you my handle. I think it's Kai Rizdal at Mastodon.world. I don't know. There's a whole bunch of different servers. Anyway, so I think on Tuesday we're going to talk about alternatives to Twitter. Is that the plan? I think that's the plan. Yeah, because, you know, I talked the other day about trying to, like, claim my name on all these different social media yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. alternatives. And, you know, I got on Mastodon and I thought that I did it right, but then I couldn't follow Amy Scott, but I could follow you. And then I did it again. And right. now I can follow Amy and some other people, but then I have lost everything that I did on the other one. And it's very confusing. And I keep reading all these explainers of how Mastodon works and I still don't understand. So this is a perfect opportunity for someone else to make us smart yeah. on how this works. And also just to talk about um, alternatives to Twitter when it has been such a global public square. And I'm very interested in what's going to happen if that mm, marketplace does fracture, 
you know, and what happens mm-hmm. when we sort mm-hmm. of siphon ourselves off into mm-hmm. even more siloed communities uh, online, which we've been talking a little bit about on tech this week. Where do we live online yeah. and what happens yeah. when different groups of people just inhabit different online spaces and don't necessarily communicate? So, yeah, I think we're going to get to that on yep. Tuesday. Good. Uh, and yeah, good. but for today, that is it. All that we have for our What Do You Want to Know Wednesday. I will be back tomorrow, as Kai mentioned, with our guest host, Andy Euler, and to make you smart on the news of the day and to make you smile as well. In the meanwhile, the only way that What Do You Want to Know Wednesday works uh, is if you have things you want to know. So send us your questions. Our email is makemesmart at marketplace.org. Leave us a voicemail if you like. 508-UB-SMART is how you do that. Make Me Smart is produced by Marissa Cabrera and Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Charlton Shore, Charlton Shore, Charlton Thorpe <laughs> was in charge today down in the studios at DTLA. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Bridger Bodner is working on a new season of Million Bazillion right now, or so she says. Donna Tam is for now the director of On Demand. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.